in 2 Kings chapter 3, and we've just spent the last three weeks going through the life and times of Elijah, so now we're on Elisha, and he just got anointed in chapter 2. Elijah has been sucked up in a whirlwind and is gone, so he's the guy now, and got some setup to do here early in chapter 3. He actually doesn't show up until about the 13th verse of chapter 3. So let's start at the beginning. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. This is, I think, actually not the immediate successor to Ahab, but the second successor. His first, uh, his son uh, only lasted a few months, and then this is the one who succeeded him. So there had been Ahab, then Ahaziah, his son, and he didn't reign very long at all, less than a year. And then after him comes Jehoram. So they're both sons of Ahab, and he doesn't get rid of the golden calves. So you remember when the northern kingdom split off, they set up golden calves at Bethel and at Dan. And then from there, Jezebel brought in worship of Baal when she came down and married Ahab. The reason for the golden calves is to prevent Israel from reuniting with Judah. The idea when Jeroboam put them up is if my people keep going down for the feasts of ascent three times a year, we are eventually going to reunite and I'm going to lose my throne. So what he did is he put the golden calf at Bethel and the golden calf up north at Dan and changed the dates of the feasts. So he shifted everything by a month. So not only was the place of worship changed, but the times of worship were changed. So when Jehoram ascends to the throne, he is not at all secure in his kingdom. So for whatever reason, probably very similar reasons to the reason they were originally built, he keeps that part of the northern kingdom's worship. So now we're all the way down to verse 4. Now Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he, the king of Judah, said, I will go. I am as you are. My people are as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By way of the wilderness of Edom. Moab is that pink area on the east side of the Dead Sea. Edom is south of there. So what's happening is the king of Israel is marching from the central highlands north of Jerusalem. He's coming down south through Judah. He's joining up with Judah. They are hooking farther down south, and they're going to cut then east and come up from below. So they're going to attack Moab from the south. 
And one of the things we're going to find is they start going down into this area, they start hitting wilderness. So this whole area down through here is wilderness, and as we'll see in a minute, they're going to run out of water. That's the plan. So verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. All right, so now listen what's happened here. Moab is a descendant of Lot. And what you have is Israel and Judah and Edom, who are the descendants of Isaac. So you have Esau and Jacob are the sons of Isaac. Jacob has now been split into Judah and Israel. So what you have is the sons of Isaac going against the sons of Lot. Verse 9 again. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. They have cut south here, and this down here in the Judean wilderness is where they are, and south of there, and they've got an army, and they've marched down into Edom here, and they've run out of water. Verse 10. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them unto the hands of Moab. In other words, oh, shoot, we're about to lose our army and we're about to lose the war. Verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. So Elisha is one who poured water on the hands of Elijah, which is to say he was the servant of Elijah. Verse 12. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. He's looking at the king of Israel and he's saying, you are the descendant of Ahab and Jezebel. They brought their own prophets down. You need to talk to the prophets. Go talk to your parents' prophets, kid. I'm not talking to you. So what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no. It is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. In other words, I, Jehoram, believe that God has put us here, and he's put us here so he can basically punish us. And no, I'm not going to talk to the prophets of Baal, because you remember early in the chapter, he got rid of all those guys. Verse 14, And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. There is precedent for this. David and Saul. So the idea that music can induce an ecstatic state seems to be other places. Verse 16. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. You shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water 
and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Apparently, God is more upset with Moab than he is with Israel. He's going to give Moab into their hand with the instruction that not only do I want you to conquer the place, but I want you to destroy it economically. So what you're going to do is you're going to take all their arable fields and you're going to put stones on them so they can't be plowed. You're going to cut down all their trees. And what does it say in the Torah when you lay siege to a city? You don't cut down the fruit trees. You're welcome to cut down oaks and pines and all that kind of stuff that don't bear fruit, and you can use those to make siege engines, but you don't cut down the fruit trees. This apparently says cut it all down because what you're doing is you're destroying the economic power of Moab. Verse 20. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able put on armor. From the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them red as blood. So what they're doing is they're seeing a low-angle mirage, and the sun is really red, so as they're seeing this water, it's reflecting red like blood. 23. They said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. So the idea here is you have the king of Judah and the king of Israel and the king of Edom, and they are at best rivals. At worst, they can very well imagine a falling out occurring between the three armies. And again, there's precedent for that also. So you remember back in the time of the judges, they had Midianites up in the Jezreel Valley, and they surrounded them at night with their torches inside of pots, and they broke the pots. God sowed confusion in the enemy camp, and the enemies fell upon each other and basically self-destructed. The idea that that happens is fairly consistent with biblical history. Verse 24, But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in Ker Hereseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So they've destroyed everything as they've gone. They've got rocks in all the fields, and they're now surrounding Ker Hereseth. Verse 26, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom. So what he's trying to do there is he is hoping that the Edomites are not as militarily competent as the Israelites. I'm assuming he's figuring out that's my best shot at a weak point and that's where I'm going to try and go through. So he took 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. I have no idea what's going on there. The best explanation I have heard, I'm not pushing it at all, I'm simply saying it's the best thing I've heard, is when he sacrifices his son, the Israelite army says, oh, this guy's serious. 
sort of like when they were lined up to invade Japan during World War II. The estimates of what it would have cost to invade Japan in American killed and wounded were horrific. The only thing that I have heard that seems to make sense is when the king of Moab sacrifices his son, he's basically saying, we're all going kamikaze on you. And at that point, Israel said, maybe we've won this war, let's go home. But that's a guess. So now we're on to chapter 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. The idea here is that the economic engine of the family is the husband, and he has got debts, and he has died in his debts. And so his sons are then forfeit to pay off his debt. You know, they become bond servants, if you will. These are Israelites, so the law is that they would serve for no more than seven years. We know from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah goes to Judah before the Babylonian exile and says, all right, you guys haven't been doing the seventh year of release. You need to release your slaves. And everybody listened to the prophet and released their slaves until there was nobody to do the laundry. So they turned around and went back and scooped them back up again. And that becomes one of the reasons that Judah is sent into exile. So even though the Torah says that the sons of this dead prophet can in fact be enslaved for up to seven years to pay his debts, what apparently was happening at this late state in Israel is the seventh year of release was not being honored. But the other part of that is her boys are her economic support. So if her boys are taken into slavery, she then has no one to provide for her. So verse 2. And Elijah said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few, and then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels and when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. And you all remember since we just went through it, Elijah performs essentially the same miracle, except in his case, it's flour. And we had said on Shabbat, when we were studying Yeshua, that Yeshua also goes up to that area, and also stays with a widow, and also performs a miracle for her. In this case, the woman falls at his feet and says, you need to cast this demon out of my, my child. And he says, it's not right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And she says, even the dogs get to eat the scraps that fall from the table. And he says, fine, go, your, your child is free of the demon. So this is all in that same area. Yeshua goes up there, Elijah goes up there, Elijah goes not quite so far up. He only goes to the Jezreel Valley. He goes to Shunem. But all of them stay with somebody 
and perform miracles for them. And the idea is the stories of Yeshua, the stories of Elijah, the stories of Elijah, and we won't probably get there tonight, but Elisha is going to feed a group of people as a prefigurement of loaves and fishes. So the idea is all of the things that Yeshua does are prefigured by the heavy hitter prophets in the Old Testament. The point here is he gives her enough jugs of olive oil, and you can be sure it's probably the good stuff, that she is going to be able to sell for enough not only to pay her debts, but also to live on until her sons get to the point where they can support her. We're all the way down to verse 8. One day Elisha went to Shunem. Now Shunem is in the Jezreel Valley, south of the Sea of Galilee, north of the Carmel Mountains in the, in the plain of Esdraelon, right near, I think, Mount Tabor. One day Elijah went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. Now, she simply might be member of the altar guild and pious woman and so forth, you can also sort of expect you really want to be around people that God is working through because it's a biblical principle and it goes all the way back to Jacob. Remember, Jacob goes north and stays with Laban. And not only does Jacob prosper, but Laban prospers because of Jacob's presence. It goes back to Abraham. Lot prospers because he's with Abraham. So the idea of wanting to keep obvious men of God close goes all over Scripture. There may be some self-interest there, or as I say, she may simply be a devout person and wants to help. It's verse 11. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. Now, this Jezreel Valley is an area of contention. We just found out earlier in, in our discussion that we had Midianites there in the time of Gideon. We have Syrians come down and occupy that area periodically. So, for example, Deborah and Barak, that area was occupied by the Syrians. So the idea that a Shunammite would not be an Israelite is perfectly sound given that region that changed hands so much. And so what he's asking her is, do you want me to go talk to the commander of the army that has jurisdiction over this and put in a good word? And she says, eh, I'm among my people, which is to say, I am not a member of a conquered people here. Whoever is the commander here is one of my own people, and I don't need a special word put in for me. It's not as if I am under enemy occupation. Verse 14, and he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, At this season, about this time next year, 
you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elijah had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. Don't know how old this kid is. You know, it said in verse 18, when the child had grown. Don't know what that means. I don't know whether he is, in fact, old enough to be actively working in the field, or whether he's, you know, 8, 10, or 11, where you know, he can be wandering around making himself useful, but he's not swinging a scythe. I, you know, just don't have any idea how old the kid is at this point. Verse 21, And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door behind him, and went out. So she takes him up into the room that she's made for Elijah, puts him on Elijah's bed, and then heads out. 22. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go up to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Now, we've taught on this before, and I will reiterate that teaching because I agree with it. This echoes what Yeshua does with Jairus' daughter. Remember, he's walking through the crowd, and you have the woman with the issue of blood who has had an issue of blood for 12 years, and she touches his garment, and power goes out of him. And Jairus, who's the ruler of the synagogue, comes to him, and his 12-year-old, by the way, you have two 12s there, uh, and I think what that is is the nation Israel has been an unclean woman for 12 years and needs to be raised from the dead. Anyway, Jairus shows up and said, my daughter's sick, come heal her. As they are heading to his house, a messenger comes and says, you don't need to bother the rabbi, your daughter just died. What does Yeshua say? He says, don't talk. Don't say anything. And the idea here is the Shunammite woman also doesn't say anything, except it's a well. What she doesn't do is she doesn't start screaming and say, my baby's dead, my baby's dead, or my son is dead. Similarly, Yeshua, when he meets Jairus and Jairus gets the bad news that his daughter has died, he says, don't say anything, only believe. And in both cases, I believe... What they are doing is saying, do not speak into this situation because I am going to go do something and if I've got you speaking something different into the situation, it's A, either not going to work or B, going to be really difficult. So just keep your mouth shut and let me do my thing. And so the Shunammite woman doesn't say a word except, as you say, I'm going or it is well or however you want to describe it, but she doesn't speak anything about her son being dead. We've talked about the power of a prophet's words. Your words also have power. So if you start speaking negatively into a situation, you create spiritual cross-currents that may make it difficult or impossible for the man of God to do his thing. And the example we have there is Yeshua. When Yeshua goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, and everybody looks at him and says, isn't this Joe the carpenter's son? Who's this guy? 
And it says he could do no miracles there because the people were, that's only Joe's son. We've known him since he was in diapers. This can't be anybody special. And so to them, he wasn't anybody special. So the idea here of the Shunammite woman being silent in the face of losing her son and going straight to the man of God is, if you will, a pattern that gets set up and it shows up other places in Scripture. 24. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once and meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. So again, what she's doing is speaking positively into the situation. 27. When she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. So at this point, Elijah's lightning fast mind realizes we got a problem and it has to do with the child. But again, notice that the woman doesn't specifically say what the problem is, nor does he. 30. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Which is to say, you're either coming with me or you got me for the rest of your life. Okay? So he arose and followed her, and Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was no sound or sign of light. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. 32. When Elijah came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on its mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, and she picked up her son and went out. And of course, this exactly mirrors Elijah, who also raises a child from the dead, it also mirrors Yeshua, who raises several people from the dead. The precedent for all of the miracles that Yeshua does are laid back here in the Old Testament. So as he's going around doing this stuff, everybody's mind should be, whoa, Elijah or Elijah, because he's doing the same stuff. So there's no question that this guy is, Yeshua, is a for real, genuine prophet of God. Now, of course, we know he's more than that, but at least he's that much. So with there, we'll quit. 
Till we back to close in prayer.